Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Luke chapter 7. As we continue through the Gospel of Luke this morning. You know, one of the most complicated and fascinating generals in U.S. history is General Patton, who helped win World War II. General Patton. Historians tell us that he was probably the greatest military genius that our nation has ever known. He was a larger-than-life iconic figure during his time. George Patton. Now, he believed in order to increase the morale of the troops during World War II, he needed as a leader to be larger than life. He needed to be this big heroic icon, this big symbol of victory. And so that sometimes got him in trouble because Patton had a big ego. Sometimes he had got crosshairs with General Eisenhower, who was the general who later became president. So in order to show that He was truly in charge of his troops, and to inspire morale, George Patton would walk around with an attitude. He had a war face that he would would don. He would have two pistols on each hip. He would have an ivory-gripped, engraved, silver-plated Colt Action 45 caliber on his right hip, and on his left hip, he would have a Smith & Wesson 357 Magnum. And he would walk around with a polished helmet and these boots really high with his war face on, letting everybody know he meant business. George Patton. Now, he also claimed to be a devout Christian, but he believed in reincarnation. He thought he was reincarnated as somebody that was in Napoleon's army back in the early 1800s, maybe all the way back to a Roman legionnaire back in the time of Julius Caesar. He cussed like a sailor. And his speeches were fiery. And although he saved the Jews out of concentration camps, behind the scenes it was rumored that he was anti-Semitic and was probably a racist. He was an intense general. He was highly critical of his subordinates. He would get on them for the most minor of infractions. He was impetuous. He was impulsive. But he was also probably the most brilliant military genius in American history. He did not have a good reputation among the Allied leaders. As a matter of fact, a lot of the American generals didn't really like him. Britain, France, they didn't like him. But the Germans, they were in awe of him. They were afraid of him. They were afraid of his tank warfare. As a matter of fact, Hitler called him that crazy cowboy general, General Patton. He knew how to command troops. He was a man with a huge ego. He was a man who took risks. He was a man who sometimes bucked the chain of command. And in the end, it worked out for him because he was instrumental in helping us win World War II. He was a larger-than-life icon figure of his time. So much so that in 1970, George C. Scott played Patton in the movie Patton, won Best Movie, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Original Screenplay, George Patton. 
Now, most people that are up to speed on American history know Patton, know World War II, know all of these things about George Patton. And I want you to contrast Patton, this larger-than-life, big-ego war general that movies have been made about him, with Luke chapter 7, we have a centurion, the military leader. We don't even know his name. He wasn't a larger-than-life leader. We don't know anything about his military conquest or victories or losses. All that we know about this man before us today was that he loved the nation of Israel. He was a good leader. He loved his servant. And most importantly, and this is the big issue for this morning, he was a man at whom Jesus marveled at his faith. Jesus marveled, was astonished at the faith of this centurion. A man we don't even know who his name is. Now we're moving into a new section in the Gospel of Luke. For many weeks, we were in chapter 6, where Jesus preached that sermon. The Beatitudes, love your neighbors, love your enemies, don't judge, fruit bearing, build your house upon the rock. Now he's beginning a new ministry in Galilee. And he'll go around the countryside of Galilee to many different cities and villages and meet many different types of people. But in chapter 7 and in chapters 8, these two chapters before us, there are two words that show up over and over again that these two chapters teach us about. The two words are faith and salvation. Faith and salvation. So we're going to find out how Jesus saves these people that he meets, and we're going to find out about their faith in him. So let's read together this account in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, about the centurion and his servant. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. That's one of the towns there in Galilee. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death and who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When he came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is an amazing account because Jesus marveled, verse 9, he marveled at the faith of the centurion. This is the only place besides one other place in the New Testament where Jesus marveled at somebody's faith. Here in Luke, Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. In Mark chapter 6, he marvels at their lack of faith. 
In Mark 6, 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So what is it about this centurion's faith that, that, that made Jesus marvel, astonished? Well, let's ask a couple of questions. First of all, what's a centurion? A centurion comes from that word 100, century, cent, 100. It's a soldier that is in command of 100 men, a centurion. Now, he was one of 60 centurions that made up the Roman legion of 6,000 soldiers. So he's a man that's commanding 100 troops. Now, his servant is at the point of death. His servant is dying. In Matthew's account, we find out that this servant is paralyzed and is suffering terribly. And so in verse 3, all we know about the centurion is that he had heard about Jesus. Verse 3, when the centurion heard about Jesus. He probably never saw a miracle. He probably never saw him teach in the synagogues. All he knew was Jesus by reputation. He had heard of Jesus. Now, as a military leader, he's good at delegating. So instead of going to Jesus himself, he delegates these Jewish leaders, these Jewish elders, to go on his behalf. And so these Jewish leaders go to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. And what do they do when they get to Jesus? In verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he's worthy to have you do this for him. Now, perhaps these Jewish leaders thought that Jesus would not lower himself to go to a Gentile, but maybe only limited his ministry to the Jewish people. But I want you to notice the wording of these Jewish leaders. Notice what they say about the centurion. He is worthy. He's worthy for you to do this. He's a good person. He's a friend of the Jews. He's a friend of the nation of Israel. He built their synagogue. Verse 5, he loves our nation. He's one who helped build our synagogue, probably out of his own money. That synagogue today is still standing. If you go to Capernaum, you can see the synagogue that that centurion helped build. So from a purely human point of view, this man is worthy. Jesus has every reason to heal this man. He was an upright, good, moral citizen. He was generous. He was kind. He was helpful. And so these Jewish leaders are thinking in terms of human worthiness and merit. So they thought to themselves, he lives a good life. He's a good man. He's kind. He's generous. He's a friend of our nation. Because he checks off the boxes of morality, he must automatically deserve God's blessing. So there's a stark contrast between this passage and how the Jewish leaders understand faith and salvation and how the centurion does. And so these Jewish leaders are puffing this man up to Jesus. He's worthy. He's good. He's a good guy. He's a good old boy. You need to, you need to heal his servant because he deserves it, Jesus. Now you get down to verse 9, and there's the crescendo. Jesus marveled at his faith. And so I have to have a question here. Why did Jesus find this man's faith so amazing? What was it about the centurion's faith that made Jesus stop and say, I'm amazed. I've never found such faith in all of Israel. A Gentile, 
whose faith is mentioned before the Israelites' faith is mentioned. So as you look deeply at this passage of Scripture, we look at the faith of the centurion. And I want us to explore three aspects of his faith, three ways that he demonstrates faith. And really what we see in the centurion is a template, an example, a prototype of what it means to place our faith in Jesus, to come to faith in Christ. We see this in the centurion. So let's look at his faith. What do we learn about his faith? What do we learn about the nature of saving faith when we look at this centurion? Well, the first thing we see about him is that he had a deep sense of unworthiness. A deep sense of unworthiness. Now, remember what the Jewish leaders say to Jesus. This man's worthy. You've got you to gotta heal this man's servant. He's, he's a good, upright, moral citizen. He, he's worthy, Jesus. Now, I want you to notice what happens. So Jesus goes with them. Verse, verse 6, Jesus goes with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, and notice what the centurion says to tell Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I'm not worthy. For you to come heal my servant. Jewish leaders, he's worthy. He's a good guy. He checks all the boxes. Centurion, Jesus, don't even bother. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Now we see this sense of unworthiness all throughout the Bible. Remember back in Luke chapter 5, I know that was a long time ago, where Jesus and Peter were in the boat and Jesus performed the miracle of the great catch of fish. What did, what did Peter say to Jesus in Luke 5, verse 8? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus, you, I'm unworthy. Get, get away from me. I'm sinful. Depart from me. Luke 18, 13 through 14, Jesus tells the parable of the tax collector and the, and, and, and the Pharisee. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but who, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinner. Reminds you of what the prophet Isaiah experienced when he was in the temple. Remember Isaiah's in the temple and the, the, flaming, the, the flaming creatures, these angelic creatures come to him and the, and the place is shaking and there's smoke filling the temple. And what does Isaiah do? What does Isaiah say? In Isaiah 6, 5, he said, Woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter cries out, I'm not worthy to have you in my presence, Jesus. The tax collector says, I'm not worthy to have you in my presence. Be merciful upon me. Isaiah says, I'm about to come unraveled. I'm not worthy to be in your presence, holy God. All three of these men understood their sinfulness in the presence of the Lord. And somehow this centurion understands the same. I'm not worthy, Jesus, to have you come into my house. He doesn't have all the information about who Jesus is, but somehow he knows I'm not worthy for Jesus to come and do this. Everyone else 
saw the centurion as a worthy man. He checks off all the boxes. He's a good soldier. He's generous. He's kind. He's helpful. He's loving. He's upright. He loves our nation. He built the synagogue. Check box, check box, check box. He is a, a poster child for morality, for being an upright citizen. And everybody looked at the centurion and says, you're the one that's worthy. If anybody's worthy, you're the one that's worthy to receive this blessing. And what does the centurion say about himself? I could care less about all those things that you've checked off in those boxes. I'm unworthy to have Jesus come and do this. You see, he understood the depth of his unworthiness in the presence of Christ's worthiness. The worthy nature of Christ to be worshipped. You see... This is one of the first things we need to understand if we're to come to faith in Christ. If anybody's to come to faith in Christ, it starts with this deep understanding, I'm unworthy to receive salvation. I'm unworthy of anything to offer to my Savior. I'm a sinner. All I deserve is hell. I only can cast myself at the mercy of Christ. I'm hopeless. I'm helpless, I'm hellbound, I have no merit, I have nothing to offer God, I'm unworthy. How are we saved? Paul tells us, you know the passage. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you boast about your ability to meet up to God's standard? Or do you say before a holy God, I'm unworthy. I'm a wretch. I'm a sinner. Have mercy upon me. Depart from me, O Lord. I don't deserve anything. That's the first step in really understanding what it means to have saving faith in Christ is this understanding of our unworthiness in the presence of his worthiness. And somehow the centurion understood that. I'm not worthy. So that's the first thing we see about his faith. This overwhelming sense of his unworthiness. Now let's look at the second aspect of his faith. He had a solid confidence in the power of Jesus' word. He had a solid confidence in the power of Jesus' word. Notice verse 7. After saying, Jesus, I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof, notice what he says there in verse 7. Therefore I do not presume to come to you, but say the word. And let my servant be healed. You don't need to come into my house. You don't need to lay hands upon the guy. You don't even need to be in his presence. I know, Jesus, something about you. All you need to do is say the word. Not even the words. Uh, say the word. And my servant will be healed. What I find so fascinating about this centurion is he had limited knowledge of Jesus. He really didn't know who Jesus was, but somehow he knew that Jesus' word was powerful. Now think about this centurion. He did not grow up in the synagogue. He did not grow up learning about the Ten Commandments. He did not grow up learning about all these prophecies about the Messiah. This is before the cross, before the resurrection, before Paul wrote his epistles explaining to us the deity of Christ. This centurion probably didn't know that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he was God in the flesh, that he was the eternal begotten Son of God, that he was the Messiah, that he was fully God, fully man, fully divine. He probably had none of those theological ducks in a row. All he knew was, Jesus just has to say the word and my servant will be healed. 
Just say the word. Just say the word. Now here's the irony for us. We're on this side of the cross. We're on this side of the resurrection. We have the fullness of the New Testament. We know who Jesus is. We know he's born of a virgin. We know he's the eternal son of God. We know he's the Messiah. We know he's the Christ. We know he's fully divine. And yet, do we trust in Christ's word, knowing all that? Probably one of the reasons why Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith was because it was just this simple faith in Christ with limited knowledge. Didn't know a lot about Jesus, just know this dude has power. Compare that to the elders, the Jewish elders. They had their Old Testament. They had the prophecies. They should have known who Jesus was. And yet you find time and time again, the people that are least likely to get it, get it. And the people that are supposed to get it, don't get it. The centurion gets it. He's humble, yet at the same time, he's like, I'm confident. Jesus just has to say the word. It was simple faith in Christ without a lot of knowledge. I think that was one of the reasons why Jesus marveled. This guy doesn't know anything about me, but he has more faith in these Gent- than these Jews that are walking around that know everything from the Old Testament. Now, I think there's another reason why maybe, perhaps, Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. Think about it. The centurion did not demand a sign, or a wonder. He didn't say to Jesus, you need to prove yourself before you come into my house. Oh, by the way, walk on water, turn water into wine, feed 5,000 people, and raise Lazarus from the dead. And if you do those things, then I'll know that you're the real deal. Prove yourself, Jesus. He doesn't demand a sign. He just says, Jesus, I know you're able to do it. He trusted in the power of Christ's word. That was enough for him. Not even to come into the, to the house just from a distance. You say the word, don't even have to come in. And I believe you'll save, you'll heal my servant. Think about the Jews of Jesus' day. He rebuked them for always seeking signs and wonders. Jesus was always saying, this adulterous generation, you seek for a sign, you seek for a wonder. You don't understand who's standing right in front of you. Mark 8, 11 through 12, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply, that's Jesus, he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The Jews wanted signs and wonders. They wanted Jesus to prove himself. The centurion just says, say the word, Jesus. You don't even have to come into the house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. I trust your word. That's enough for me. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So this is another important aspect of saving faith. Do you take Jesus at his word? Are you humble and understand your unworthiness before a holy God? And do you simply just take Jesus for his word? Do you trust his word? J.C. Ryle says this, Faith is abandoning trust in our works and merit and any thought of deserving salvation and relying totally and without reserve on the person of Christ and the authority of his word. Are you totally without reserve trusting in Christ 
and the authority of his word. So the centurion, first of all, has this utter humility. I'm unworthy, Jesus. But number two, he has this confidence. It's kind of a paradox. He's, he's got this humility, but he's got this confidence. I don't know exactly how you're going to do it, Jesus, but I know that you don't even need to come in and lay hands upon this man or say a word to this man or even be in the house with this man. You can say it from a distance, and that's enough because you're so powerful, Jesus. Somehow the centurion understood all this. But yet there's a third thing that made Jesus marvel at his faith. Third He understood what it means to submit to Christ's authority. He understood what it means to submit to Christ's authority. Notice what he says there in verse 8. For I too, just like you, Jesus, somehow he understood something about Jesus. I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus, I understand what it's like to to understand authority structures because I'm a military man. I've got chain of command. I've got orders coming all the way down from the emperor down through the chain of command to me, and I have to obey those commands. And I am a soldier over 100 men, and when I tell them what to do, they have to do it without reserve. So I understand authority structures that when somebody tells you what to do, you do it. And he says, I too, just like you, Jesus, And a man under authority. Now, what did the centurion understand about Jesus? Did Jesus say anything about being Lord, about being king? Did Jesus even reveal, did even Jesus even come to the centurion yet? Somehow the centurion understood Jesus has absolute authority as Lord. And that authority came from God. Again, I don't understand how the centurion understood this. He did not have all of his theology. He didn't have all of his ducks in a row. He he had limited knowledge. But somehow, through the power of the Spirit, I think, the centurion understood who Jesus was. That he's worthy of praise. I'm unworthy. He's got a powerful word. That's enough. And he's a man of authority. I'm going to submit to him as Lord. He understood that. Thomas Brooks wrote a little book called The Touchstone of Sincerity. And he says something very interesting. The terms upon which Christ is offered in the gospel are these. We shall accept a whole Christ with a whole heart. Now, you may have never heard the terminology, the whole Christ. The total Christ. Does this mean there's a half Christ? Sadly, in many of our churches today, we present only a part of who Jesus is. We don't present the whole Christ And if we're going to trust him for salvation, we have to give our whole heart to the whole Christ. That means the totality of all who Jesus is in the Bible. You may not be familiar with the threefold offices of Christ as they are presented in the scriptures. As prophet, priest, and king. The three offices that the Old Testament had. You see, in the Old Testament, there were three offices. The prophet would come and he would preach God's word to the people. The priest would sacrifice on behalf of the people. And the king, like David, would rule the people. And all three offices were anointed with oil. Now, no one person served all three offices. You couldn't be a king and a priest. You couldn't be a prophet and a king. No no one person held all three offices. But as Jesus comes, he holds all three offices 
as the anointed one. That's what Messiah means, anointed one. So what does it mean to take the whole Christ? You take him as prophet, priest, and king. You see, the priestly part of of Jesus is what most people understand. They may not use that terminology, but it's it's, it's important that we understand that we must receive the totality of who Christ is. You can't just take half of who Christ is. And I'll explain kind of what that means here in a moment. But as Christ, as our prophet, Christ as our prophet instructs us or teaches us God's word. Christ as our prophet instructs us, teaches us God's word. What did the prophets do in the Old Testament? They proclaimed God's word. They taught God's word. They were telling forth God's word. It it was a word-based ministry, the prophets. And so when Jesus comes along, he's the living word. He instructs us what we are to believe. He's the ultimate teacher. He's the ultimate preacher. Do you listen to Jesus as the prophet to instruct you and tell you how to live? Do you listen to Jesus as your prophet as the one to whom you must listen, the word you must receive, the living word. He's your prophet. Christ, as our priest, redeems us and intercedes for us. This is the one that most people understand. What did the priests do in the Old Testament? They, they offered sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, blood sacrifices, animal sacrifices. They, were, they went on behalf of the people. We understand that Jesus is our priest in the sense that he died on the cross in our place as the pure spotless lamb, shedding his blood for us so that we can be forgiven. The only way that you can have a right standing with the holy God is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. He's your priest in the sense that he's the sacrifice that gives you access to a holy God. And we understand that. Jesus died for my sins. But here's the third one that we often neglect in churches today, but I think the centurion fully understood. Christ is our king, sanctifies and rules us. Jesus is king, which means he's the one in control. He's sovereign. He's in charge. He calls the shots. He tells us how to live. He guides our life. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen to again what Thomas Brooks says. He says, A hypocrite may be willing to embrace Christ as a priest to save him from wrath, from the curse of hell, from everlasting burning. But he's never sincerely willing to embrace Christ as prophet to teach and instruct him. And as a king to rule and reign over him, many hypocrites are willing to embrace a saving Christ, but they're not willing to embrace a ruling Christ, a commanding Christ. Many people like Jesus as Savior, but they don't want him as Lord. I want a Christ that died for me, but I don't want a Lord that can rule me. And you can't take half of Christ. He is the prophet who teaches you. He is the priest who dies for you. And he's the king who rules you. And the centurion understood that. That Jesus is a man of authority. He is king of kings and lord of lords. Paul says in Philippians 2.10, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. If you're to come to faith in Christ, you've got to take him as he is in the scriptures. You can't pick and choose. He's the prophet that teaches you, instructs you, 
He's the priest that dies in your place, and he's the king who rules you. A lot of people like the I want to get out of hell free card, Savior, but they don't like the Lord, I must submit my life to him part. God, take both, the whole Christ. And so what is faith? What is faith? I think J.I. Packer gives a great definition. Faith is an empty hand outstretched to receive the free gift of God's righteousness in Christ. It's an empty hand. What's a hand that has something in it? God, here's what I got to offer you. God, here's my good works. Here's my resume. Here's my worth. Here's, you you got to save me, God, because look at what I can give you. I'm going to give you something, God, to obligate you to save me. Now, the centurion says, I have nothing to offer. I just have an empty hand. An empty hand of faith that just stretches out and receives the gift of Christ. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You must receive Jesus. You must believe in Jesus. Acts 15, 11, but we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. You've got to be saved through faith by believing in Jesus. Acts 16, 30 through 31, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Believe, receive, trust in Jesus, the whole Christ. Give your whole heart to the whole Christ. Now, I'm not done yet because there's something interesting in here. Notice what Jesus does in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even Israel have I found such faith. He turns to the crowd and says, I've not found such great faith in all of Israel. Now, why does he turn to the crowd? Why didn't Jesus just keep it to himself? Oh, this is kind of amazing. I'll keep it to myself. Does he turn to the crowd to shame them and say, you guys are are crazy. You're, you're, You're not anywhere close to where this centurion is in faith. I'm going to shame you, crowd. Does he say it to inflate the ego of the centurion? Hey, you've got to have faith like this guy. This guy's awesome. Why does he tell it to the crowd? It's an invitation for them to exercise the same kind of faith. Look at this guy. He received me by grace alone, through faith alone, and understood I'm Lord. Can you believe that? Now, crowd, would you do the same? I'm standing right in front of you. Would you see your unworthiness? Would you trust my word? Would you understand that I'm Lord? He turns to the crowd and says, I'm telling this on your behalf so that you would trust in me the way the centurion did. Now, Jesus turns to all of us today with the same invitation. Would you receive Christ as Lord? Have you abandoned all of your merit all of your accolades, all the things that you think you can give God, have you abandoned all that and said, I can offer nothing because I'm unworthy. All I can do is give you an empty hand and stretch it out and receive the free gift of grace. Do you believe in the power of Christ's word that he is who he is and he's going to do what he says he's going to do? And have you confessed Jesus as Lord who has every right to rule you and to guide you and to direct you? Would we all stretch out an empty hand that aren't worthy? All we're worthy of is hell. 
and death. And Jesus stands ready to receive us when we stick out those empty hands of faith. Would we all be reminded afresh that we need Christ in all of his glory? We need him as a prophet to teach us to hear his word. We need him as a priest who died for us and is interceding for us, but we also need him as a king to rule us, to guide us, to be our Lord. So I want us to be like the centurion this morning. He had humility. I'm unworthy. But he had confidence. I trust God's going to do what he's going to do. So would you today have that same type of unworthiness mingled with confidence that Christ can save to the uttermost. Anybody who would come to him with empty hands of faith. What does Hebrews 7.25 say? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost those who do what? draw near in faith. Would we all today, no matter where you are today, would we all today draw near in faith to Jesus who's able to save to the uttermost? Every single one of us today needs Jesus. He's the king. He stands ready, willing, and able to receive all who would come to him with the faith like the centurion. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Of our unworthiness, we have nothing to offer you. Our righteousness is like filthy rags. The good things that we do are never good enough because your standard is perfection. We're sinners separated from a holy God and our only hope is Christ. Would every single one of us today, maybe some for the very first time here in this room, reach out the empty hand of faith and receive the gift by grace alone? Would we bow to the King who has every right to rule us, to have authority over us, Jesus, when you say go, we go. When you say come, we come. When you say do this, we do that. Why? Because you're the Lord and you're commanding us. And Lord, as we enter into a time of taking the Lord's Supper, may it be a time of joy as well as a time of reflection, a time to remember a fresh the grace that we receive from Christ in the cross and in the death and the shedding of blood. Would we today have our eyes fixed upon the one who's truly worthy, King Jesus? And praise be to the Lord that you took us who were unworthy and saved us by grace, cleansed our hearts, forgave us our sins, and gave us a home in heaven. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Can never pay you back. All we can do is just receive it as a free gift and rest securely in you.
We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.